Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. And today, I've paired up with Mike Messner again to look at another of Gordon Lightfoot's hits. How good it is. Hi there, I'm Claude Call, back after a medically related break. And since it's the third time around on this show for Gordon Lightfoot, how about some Canadian music trivia for ye? This one's tough, I think. The Canadian version of the Grammy is called the Juno Award. For what it's worth, Juno, J-U-N-O, is a phonetic spelling of the name Juno, J-U-N-E-A-U, like the capital of Alaska. The award is named after Pierre Juno, who was the first president of the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission and a president of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So, here's the question. There are three Canadian musical artists with the initials A.M. who have won a Juno Award since it was created in 1970. Name them. Got that? Three Canadian musicians with initials A.M. who have won a Juno Award. For an extra hint, I'll tell you that they're all female, and I'll give you all of their names at the end of the show. So, you might remember Mike Messner from episode 152 when he and I teamed up to do a crossover episode for the Gordon Lightfoot song Sundown. Mike and I have been uh, talking to one another about a new project that we'll be unveiling in the future, and while we chatted, we started kicking around the idea of another crossover episode, and he gave me a few songs to choose from. Now, I had thought about the idea of covering If You Could Read My Mind a while back, but since this show concentrates so hard on the story behind the song, there really just wasn't enough story behind it to sustain an entire episode. But because Mike gets to do the music appreciation side of things, I thought this would be a pretty good opportunity to have a cool discussion. So after all of that, here's me once again talking with Mike Messner. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. For me, like most just Americans, like this was my entry to... Gordon Lightfoot. I actually remember hearing this song as a young kid. I would have been about seven years old when this first came out, and I first heard it not long after that. I don't remember hearing it um, as a radio hit, but I, I actually heard it first in a uh, in a hits collection, one of those like superstars of the '70s type uh, record collections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Claude, do you know how, how it sort of uh, got into the American consciousness, how this song in particular made it into people's ears? Uh, I did hear a story about how um, basically a DJ didn't really like the single that he was sent and he decided to play another track instead. And this one turned out to be it. And this is a story that crops up a lot during uh, my show and I'm talking about various hit records and a DJ saying, ah, I don't like this record. And he flips the record over and plays the B side and he likes the B side a whole lot more. And I was a little bit surprised to learn that this was not the B side for a change. No, it was an album cut from the album, which was at that time called sit down young stranger. Um, and the single that he had been given was a cover of me and Bobby McGee, which of course, Janis Joplin did uh, mm -hmm. really uh, over the top and masterful cover of, I think it was originally written by Chris Christopherson. Yes. And um, they played, if you could read my mind, which uh, was picked up by other uh, DJs and the fans really liked it. And eventually the record company got in touch with Lightfoot and said, Hey, we want to change the name of the album from sit down young stranger to, if you could read my mind. 
which led to this enormous confrontation in Hollywood. I think uh, Lightfoot actually got on a plane to L.A. to try to convince the record company, don't change the name of my album. This is mine. And he was being kind of artistically possessive about it. I kind of wondered about that because when you're at that point in your career and you're talking first hit now, you know, you, I don't know that you're in necessarily a position to make demands like that. And so there are going to be times, and I remember talking to um, Jim McCarty from the Yardbirds just a couple months ago and, and asking about decisions like this. And he was like, oh, that was totally out of our hands. We couldn't do anything about that, especially when it came to the American releases of our albums. So I imagine that, that Lightfoot went through pretty much the same arguments, even though it was a different label. It was still like, you know what? We got this. We know better than you. We're going to do whatever we want. And that's the way it wound up turning out, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think the other relevant piece of the puzzle here is that someone at the record company said to Lightfoot when they were having this discussion, they said, Lightfoot, you understand algebra, don't you? And Lightfoot said, yes. Okay, so the difference between change leaving the title of the album as it is and changing it is the difference between X and 7X. And Lightfoot said, right then, or as soon as I realized that we had we were selling copies of the album like crazy once they'd changed the name of the album, I realized I'm never going to argue with a record exec <laughs> over a title of an album again. Well, that, that's clever on his part, actually. Mm-hmm. So oh, very. Now, as the story goes, um, my, my understanding is that this was like so many hits. It's, it's kind of weird that, that, that there are some songs which artists seem to have to like beat and beat and beat and beat into shape before it turns into a thing. And other songs where they just, it just like pops into their head and they knock it out in, in a few hours and it becomes instant classic. And this was one of the latter where, where he did write this relatively quickly. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, you're right, Claude. It was written all in one afternoon. Um, He was working in his house on Blythewood Road in Toronto, and it was he's getting ready for his first album for Warner Brothers, because I think he'd been with United Artists before then. Um, It's about his first marriage, but he was really just kind of sitting down at the table and saying, okay, I've got to write some songs. Um, And it was written all in one afternoon, And he talked about it later in saying it's um, about peace through acceptance. And it's obviously stood the test of time because Lightfoot's written hundreds of songs uh, as we're talking here in 2023. But he does this song, if you can read my mind, at pretty much every single concert that he ever does. So it's a bit like the Jimmy Buffett, you know, (laughs) songs you know by heart. You, You can count on hearing this song at every Gordon Lightfoot show. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Although at the same time, I'm sure there's a little, for him, there's gotta be a little bit of, man, I like, it's almost like PTSD. I got to do this again. I got to relive this moment again. And, and I understand like, you know, there's, there's that question from the film, uh, almost famous, like, you know, do you have to be in love to write a love song? Do you have to be sad to write a sad song? And I don't mm-hmm. think that's, I don't think it's necessarily the case. I do think it helps the, the artist process a little bit. And, and it's, it's certainly helped uh, in, in his case to, to, okay, let's, let's do this thing and move on a little bit. Well, Claude, you bring up an interesting point, which is that you are 
intrigued by the writing process. Mm -hmm. And it does make me wonder, why do you like the song? Because it's one that you would do on your show with or without me. But what made you want to talk about it with this little conversation? Well, I think part of it was there's not a ton of story behind it. It, it was It's pretty simple. You know, he was going through the thing. He wanted to, to, to process it a little bit for himself and, and, and get through this thing. And, and so it was, and, and he wrote it very quickly and boom, that was pretty much the end of it. And when there's a song like this that I really, really like, and there's not a ton of story behind it, and that's always a little bit disappointing because I got to fill out a little bit more time when I'm doing my own podcast. But yeah. one of the things I like and I wanted to talk about in this context was the fact of, of Gordon Lightfoot has always had just so much imagery going on. And, and I like the way that he presents himself in the lyrics and, and the, the stuff that he comes up with. And, and so to, to take his situation and turn it into a couple of similar yet different metaphors um, is, is just is just just such a testament to, to the talent that he's got when it, when it comes to his writing. I love the, the imagery that he comes up with, whether it's this, whether it's Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which I covered solo way back early in my, the, the history of my show, or whether it's Sundown, which we did just a few months ago. Yeah. You mentioned the imagery, which says a lot about his talent as a lyricist. Mm -hmm. um, I think just as important is that it, there's enough musical variety in it. Uh, so it's not just a poem. Um, it's not just something that's written in blank verse. To me, it is the perfect Lightfoot song. It's personal. It's simple. And it is interesting, yet the arrangement is very, very straightforward. I mean, it's mm -hmm. guitar, bass, uh, lead guitar, and then orchestration, which was done by either Nick DeCaro or maybe Randy Newman. I don't remember which. Um, but it's not a, a terribly elaborate piece, and yet it's had amazing staying power and amazing success. We'll talk about how it charted and you know who else has covered it. Uh, in a little while, I suppose, but um, it to me it is the absolute pinnacle of his songwriting uh, talent. Yeah, I think so. And and it's not to say, well, he peaked early and that was the end of that. Clearly, because this was just the beginning for for Lightfoot, really, uh, especially in the U.S. I mean, he'd already had a couple of hits in Canada, but but this was the one that really broke him out here. Um, but 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 as I said, like the imagery, and it's it's not complicated. It's it's fairly simple stuff that is very accessible to to anyone. And at the same time, you know, you were you were sharing with me some of you know previous information and and how while you you while we're, we're given something that we can pick up pretty quickly, and at the same time you're a little bit confounded. And I did think about this a little bit. And, and I'm thinking specifically about mm -hmm. that first verse about, you know, an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. And you're like, what in the hell movie was that? And, you know, I, I thought about that. I was yeah. like, it, it sounds like it's a, it's something that we can all latch onto very quickly. And yet at the same time, what movie would that have been? And I had, to, I thought about it. I actually took some time to think about this one a little bit. And I came up with two possibilities, which he might've kind of melded together into one on this um one was the old Abbott costello film the time of their lives okay from uh, 1946 
and that is one in which um, Lou Costello and I'm sorry I can't remember his, who the co-star was the female lead and they were they were both killed during the time of the Revolutionary War as traitors and they were thrown down a well and there was a curse <laughs> on them that where they had to their innocence had to be proven for them to be released from the property that they were that they were bound to. So, you know, 150, 200 years goes by and Bud Abbott comes along and finally they get, they get found innocent and they manage to move on to the afterlife. And then there was another one uh, around the same time, 1945 called, I know where I'm going, which does involve a castle and a well and a curse that's all attached to the whole thing. And they think it just a more evocative kind of imagery kind of thing than, you know, U.S. colonial era type stuff. And I think he kind of pushed those two films together because they're both old time movies. They both involve ghosts. They both involve wells. But I know where I'm going at least has it's a Scottish castle, but it's there. <laughs> well, you have to wonder, though, I mean, from going from Abbott and Costello to Gordon Lightfoot, mm -hmm. uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, one, it's going from the sublime to the ridiculous in some ways, because this is a very serious, very sad song. Um, and clearly, it's possible that Lightfoot had seen one or both of these movies, um, and they are old time movies. They would have been, you know, in the early 70s or the late 60s, they would mm -hmm. have been considered old time movies. Um, but I think he's really talking about just the fact that they are both telling a compelling story. They have nothing to do with the story that he himself is telling in this song. Um, and I did not know about those two um, uh, films, but of course, Lightfoot doesn't do a whole lot of explaining to journalists or other people <laughs> about all of the songs and certainly doesn't dissect the lyrics. And I don't think there's anything shameful about that. I mean, he wants to maintain the enigma. Uh, and no, more he, power to him. He doesn't owe us anything. You know, they, I mean, what's the point of art is for you to react to it and, and to maybe interpret it and how you interpret it is kind of up to you because what you're going to respond to is not going to be the same thing that I respond to, or we're both going to respond to it, but not necessarily in the same way. And that is not necessarily a terrible thing, but let me, let me move on then because we, we, we talk about like, you know, the ridiculousness of an Abbott and Costello movie and this story about a sad relationship that's, that's gone wrong. And then you move into the next verse and he starts talking about a paperback novel, the kind the drugstore sell. And He's got to be talking about like the Harlequin romances, which were like remarkably cheap novels. Yes. They were written, you know, on, on the fly very quickly and they cranked out dozens. And do I think they, they would do like a dozen novels every single month. They, it was like enormous library of Harlequin romances. And again, it's an image you can latch onto very quickly. Um, and, and at the same time, the stories involved were, they were forgettable and they were, I mean, it's like this was, this was the, the, the literary equivalent, I, I guess, of like the Hallmark movies, you know, especially at Christmas time <laughs> where they all seem to have like the same kind of plot, you know, and the bodice ripping picture on the cover and that, that sort yeah. of thing. And, and so same thing, it's an image you can grab onto quickly. Don't take it too literally, but you get the idea. 
Well, no, you don't want to take it too literally. But on the other hand, in this one, he is bringing it just a little bit more close to the heart because he is taking some responsibility mm. for the breaks in his marriage. And he has since gone on record as saying that he did a lot of womanizing. He did a lot of running around on his first wife. Um, so the hero would be me, but heroes often fail. Um, you won't read that book again. She's not coming back to him. Right. Um, and so it sounds like he's, <clears throat> if you want to look at it in terms of the Kugler Ross cycle, he's approaching acceptance okay. that the end of his marriage has arrived. Um, and then he's coming back again to this whole idea of movies. Now, I don't know how much of an influence or how much of a movie buff Lightfoot is, but now he's talking about getting burned in a three-way script um, where he believes that he's too good to try and talk things out. He's a movie star. And number two the movie queen to play the scene is the next woman that he's going to be involved with. And that may last a week. It may last a night. It may be the love of his life that he should have been with the whole time, but he's returning to the theme of cinema one more time here. Yeah. I mean, I think in this particular case, he's kind of casting himself as, as the, the hero, the guy who gets jilted at the altar and that sort of thing. And some other woman comes along and rescues him as it, as it were, uh, at least emotionally. And, you know, I guess I guess it kind of works. Uh, you don't usually see that particular scenario. Usually it's the woman who gets, you know, jilted. But OK, we, we can run with it. Yeah. Um, then he it returns to the original theme of the ghost from the wishing well in the last verse. Um, and he, he goes into this idea of reading between the lines. And this is one of the most brilliant lines I think he's ever written because it's another way of him saying he wishes that she, the object of the song would get the messages that he's not capable of sending in words. And if you can't communicate in words, how are they supposed to uh, understand what you're saying by reading your mind? So it really does dovetail back with the title of the song, whether he was thinking about that or not when he wrote it, I'm not too sure, but it certainly works that way. Yeah, I think, I think it works out really well. I, I do appreciate that. And, and, and especially in as much as men in general, let's face it, are not awesome about expressing, you know, how they feel uh, or, mm. you know, not appropriately always. And, you know, and sometimes it's like, Hey, I did this. I did this. I did that. Like we try to demonstrate rather than say, and, and that doesn't always fly for us. Does it? No, it doesn't. And it's led to more miscommunications between the sexes than will ever be recorded in history. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's probably not something we want to talk about too much here because we might get in trouble with the people we live with. But I wanted to turn a little bit to the, people who have covered this song okay. because there's a couple of really interesting stories about this. Um, numbers of people have covered it and made him a lot of money, but um, wasn't there an occasion or an event back in the eighties where uh, Lightfoot had this idea that someone had ripped off the song? Yeah, actually. And, and this was interesting. So it was in uh, what about it? 1987, I think uh, that he did in fact sue the writer of uh, Whitney Houston's hit, the greatest love of all um, because he was of the impression 
that this writer, whose name briefly escapes me, um, basically did, took that bridge from from greatest love of all. Okay, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow, and said that this is a ripoff of If You Could Read My Mind. Eventually, he dropped that suit. Um, and, I, you know, I was listening to that and, and comparing the two, and I was like, mm, I guess maybe you could kind of hear it. You know, how far would that go in court? You know, who, who really knows? Because just remember also, this was around the time that um, John Fogarty was being sued by his prior record company for yes. plagiarizing from himself. And mm-hmm. so he went into court with his guitar and it was like, well, this song is like this, ding, 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 ding. And this song is like this, ding, 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 ding. And here's how they're different. And so it's entirely possible that he might've been convinced, well, you know, yeah, you could sue, but who really gains in the end on this one? And, and, and I think, um, you know, also just, just the fact that, you know, it was going to affect Whitney Houston who really had nothing to do with it other than being the singer of the song. She didn't write the thing. She didn't write most of her own material. So, you know, again, okay. You know, I think I've made my point and, and he was able to say that's enough of that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, And the issue was settled out of court. The songwriter whose name also escapes me for the moment um, did issue a public apology. And that was the end of that. Um, I do think that he might have had a case, but again, it would only have impacted Whitney Houston and it would have made him look like a bad guy. So I think he made a wise decision not to uh, press that. The other story that I love about this song was that he was Lightfoot was actually nominated for a Grammy in 1972 for best male pop vocal performance. And he was invited to play this song on the Grammy, uh, Broadcast Now, that is a huge deal mm-hmm. in the early 70s. I mean, and that is like the equivalent in those days of getting your picture on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine or something equivalent to that. I don't know what the modern equivalent would be, but um, he wanted to do it. And the show's producers said, well, you have to cut the song down to two minutes because that's all we have time for in the program. And Lightfoot said, nope, I'm not doing it uh, and walked away. And so he might have gotten a little bit more exposure uh, if he had done that. But I have nothing but praise for the fact that he kept his artistic integrity there because I don't think you can tell the kind of story that he is telling in this song in two minutes or even three minutes. I think the thing clocks in at about four and change, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And and you're right. I, I really don't blame him for the, for the same reason. It's like, you can't really tell the story. You, you, if, even if he's like a verse and the chorus and wind it down and you're still not necessarily getting the point of the overall thing, because he really is trying to tell a bigger picture here. There's a little bit of, you know, I screwed up and there's a little, there's a little bit of you screwed up too, but, and, 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 and then he comes toward the end and, and 
there's kind of a joint blame thing there, but at the same time, he's he's really working his way through it, and as you say, like coming to the acceptance toward the end, and that's that's a little bit of a journey that you can't quite make in two minutes. No, and I think if I were to listen to this and the thing was done in two minutes, no matter what segment of the song you kept, I would find it an unsatisfying listen. And so good on him for, you know, standing his ground on that. Um, there have been a lot of covers of this one, Claude. Um, yeah. I mean, it's almost a who's who in uh, music. Are there any that stand out to you? Um, I rather like Glenn Campbell's version. If I could read your mind, love, what a tale your thoughts could tell. Just like a paperback novel, the kind of drugstore sells. When you reach the part where the heartaches come, the hero won't be me. But heroes often um, fail. I, 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 you know, frankly, I was not impressed with Johnny Cash. I know a lot of people like that like that version. I was like, yeah, that one's okay. And then the other one I liked was... Um, Diana Krall, and she did that in a duet, and I, I, I'm trying to remember who she duetted with for it. I, I want to say Martina McBride. I, I could be wrong on that one. Hi, Claude here, interrupting our conversation. I was so wrong. It was Sarah McLaughlin who is who, who performed with Diana Krall on If You Could Read My Mind. And my apologies. Here's a clip from that song. Like a movie star who gets burned three-way script Enter number two A movie queen to play the scene Of bringing all the good things out in me But for now, love, let's be real I never thought I could act this way I've got to say that I just don't get it I don't know Um, I liked Don Williams's version. Um, although it's not my cup of tea, I like what stars on 54 did with the song. They actually made it into a dance track and didn't do a bad job. Again, it's not my taste in music, but they had a number two hit on the disco charts with this song. And if you're listening to the original, you'd think, how on earth could you make <laughs> this into something that would show up in a disco or Studio 54 or something like that? But they made it work. Yeah, and, it, it, it works. And yeah, again, yeah, yeah. Not not necessarily my cup of chai there, but, you know, it, yeah. it's it's okay. It, it, I, mean, I think it just more says more about the production and the innovation that they had. Um, Frank Sinatra did apparently try recording it at one point and then said, I can't sing this. There's too many words. So go figure. I don't know if I can imagine old blue eyes singing this one. Can you? Actually, I kind of can. Yeah, that would, that would be, that would, that would be good. If he, if he, if he took it, 
if, if he, like because there are some songs that that he takes and he kind of big bands them out and like no that that wouldn't work but there are other times when he can when he can do that kind of quiet and slow and and yeah i could see him like old school sinatra like really old school sinatra like just kind of crooning this one out that would be yeah i think he would do a fabulous job on it I think the story that went down was that he was either a major investor in or maybe owned outright the company that Lightfoot was working with at that particular time. And yeah, so Reprise he, Records, sure. Yeah, he wanted to try it. Um, so that's one of those great uh, could-have-beens in music history. That might be the uh, uh, theme for your next podcast, Claude. <laughs> I actually <laughs> thought about that doing an episode where where basically a song was offered to one artist who turned it down, and then somebody else did that. So this uh, this this you know could I could conceivably you know slot this one into that that sort of well. I've already talked about it. Now I got to come up with other material. <laughs> well, one other thing I wanted to touch on before we left this was that this was just a monster hit mm-hmm. uh, for Lightfoot. And as we've said in previous circumstances, he had done very well in Canada, but this was uh, quite possibly his biggest, uh, the first hit that really made it big in the States. Um, and, very quickly okay 27 on the australian kmr 28 on australian go set one number one on canadian rpm number one on canadian rpm adult contemporary 19 in new zealand 30 in the uk one in number one in u.s billboard easy listening and number five on the u.s billboard hot 100 and i could go on but i think you get the idea i mean this is just a, a tour de force of songwriting and it really did signal that he was not just going to be confined to the Canadian market anymore. Sure. And also just, you know, for the entire year, top 40 for the year in the U S and top 20 in Canada. So can't beat that. All right. Well, great. Uh, well, Claude, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we're talking about an amazing song and I'm doing it in amazing company. So thanks for taking a few minutes to talk with me. Today. Thank you so much. I always have a blast working with you here. How about that? Now, you might remember that during our conversation, we mentioned the writer of Greatest Love of All being accused of cribbing part of the melody from If You Could Read My Mind, and at the time, both of us had trouble remembering the writer's name. Well, by a very weird coincidence, the writer of Greatest Love of All is named Michael Masser, M-A-S-S-E-R. So, uh, color us both a little embarrassed by that one, I guess. At any rate, Carefree Highway Revisited can be found in whatever podcatcher you prefer, and you can also check it out at his website, lightfootpodcast.com. It doesn't appear as though Mike numbers his episodes anymore, but by my math, our conversation appears over there as his 43rd episode, which dropped on January 28th of 2023. Thank you once again, Mike. I had a ton of fun teaming up with you again. And before we go... Let's answer the trivia question from earlier. Back on page two, I asked you to identify the three female Canadian artists who have won a Juno Award since it was first instituted in 1970. Well, Alanis Morissette has won several times, including practically sweeping the awards in 1996 for her work on the Jagged Little Pill album. Anne Murray has won 24 Juno Awards, which I believe is the record. And Alana Miles, who most Americans know from her 1991 single, Black Velvet, won single of the year for that song, but took three others that year for her self-titled album. Now you might 
might have come up with Amanda Marshall, who is also an AM, who is popular in Canada, but has only charted once in the United States, and a couple of her songs have appeared in movie soundtracks. However, while she's been nominated for a Juno 11 times as I record this, she has yet to win that particular award. And that, my friend, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating or better yet, a review somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash how good it is. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at how good it is. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash Ow, how good it is pod or of course check out the show's website howgooditis.com where you might find a few extra bits thank you so much for listening I'll talk to you next time uh, Jenna show's over wrap it up now please how good